And while I'm at it, let me turn on Do Not Disturb. There we go. All right, we're live. Welcome to another edition of Chariot's uh, Philly, well, yeah, Chariot's Tech Chat Tuesdays. Can't even say the word anymore because it's a new year and I've suddenly forgotten how to speak. I'm Ken Rimple, and uh, welcome to our Tech Chat. Today, I brought on a guest. Uh, Keith uh, is here, Keith Gregory from Chariot. He's uh, focused a whole lot on cloud operations and on data engineering and a lot of other stuff, but uh, deep, deep knowledge of AWS and many of the solutions around it. So what we thought we'd do is in a couple minutes, we're going to kind of go through and recap what happened in reInvent this year uh, in 2022 at the end of the year. Warner Vogels uh, had a keynote. There was a whole bunch of stuff announced and uh, keeps been tracking a number of recent releases based on that. So that's going to be the focus of our show today. What I'd like to start out with, though, and actually I'll kind of start out with the ETE stuff is... We have a conference coming up, uh, as we do every year, with Philly Emerging Technologies, the Enterprise Conference uh, for 2023. It's going to be held on April 11th and 12th at the Science Center in Philadelphia, PA. So it'll be the first in-person Philly ETE since the, uh, the pandemic. Um, and we're going to have kind of a hybrid mode. So we'll have, I don't know the exact number, but we have a number of tickets. Uh, we're going to have two simultaneous speakers uh, so it's a little smaller than it has been only because we're just kind of towing into the live environment. We have a number of great speakers already lined up uh, and we will have an online component. So if you can't make it physically to Philly Emerging Tech, there's an online only ticket. And then you could purchase the full ticket, which lets you both live stream if you need to, if you're running late one morning uh, and also physically be there in attendance. Um, so we have a number of speakers. Uh, currently we've got... Uh, Let's see, We're, we have uh, someone from Cisco, Stephen Augustus, head of open source at Cisco. Uh, we have Yehuda Katz, the creator of Ember, uh, former Rust and Ruby on Rails contributor, uh, core team member on jQuery. And here's the current framework of Starbeam JS. Uh, Jessica Kerr is back for another year. Um, excellent speaker. Um, Avdi Grimm, Tammy McClellan, Richard Steeman. There's a number of others that we're lining up. We've just recently added someone to talk about multi-cloud, Deshaun Carter. Uh, he's a Spring Developer Advocate. So if you go to phillyemergingtech.com, it'll redirect you to the 2023 site. Uh, we're in early bird right now, so uh, the tickets are discounted a bit. So if you want to get your tickets now, you'll save a little money. And also get the ticket before they fill up and we have, are going to online uh, because we'll get to a certain size and it's smaller than most of uh, the last years. So get your tickets if you want to be in person. Uh, it's going to be a good show. We also have uh, a lot of content out there. So for example, if you go to chariotsolutions.com and you go to slash blog or you click on resources blog, um, you can get to our, our, our blog where we write uh, a lot of content. So two most recent ones um, are um, a 20th anniversary Philly Emerges the Innovation Center. We're kind of a look back um, at how we've been, uh, you know, as a Philadelphia, uh, you know, tech scene, how we've grown up over the years. That's Tracy Wilson Rostin's article. Um, and then the one that's technical here that's a good one for our discussions is Friends Look, Don't Let Friends Use JSON in Their Data Lakes by Keith Gregory. So um, Keith, do you want to just give a, a very short capsule of what this is about? Sure. So this is looking at long-term storage of data in a data lake. And JSON is kind of the standard for moving data around, uh, it has a couple of limitations when you store it long terms, uh, most prevalent being no schema. So a year from now, you may not know what the data actually means. So in this blog post, I go over the limitations. I talk about how you can make some changes. And I end up recommending going with a uh, four-year data lake that you're going to be using long-term using a format that has a schema such as uh, Parquet or Orc or Avro. And uh, this week, I'm actually going to be putting out a post showing how you can create Avro files since I haven't found a good post on that out in the real world. Cool. Okay. Again, that's at chariotsolutions.com slash blog. One more quick plug. If you go to youtube.com, uh, if I can type, uh, you can get to a ton of videos, including all of our Tech Chat Tuesdays. Um, if you go to playlist, you can get to all of our Philly Emerging Tech conferences uh, going back, uh, I guess, 10 years. 
or close to that anyway, and um, other shows as well. So check that out for other resources, all free. We don't require to register good resources for you. Lots of famous people you might know, uh, people who are committers on projects you might uh, have read about or heard about, you get to see them all speaking at one of our conferences. All right, so the big topic uh, for today and why I brought you on the show, Keith, is, is we talk about um, ADBS from time to time, but we had a big, uh, their, their yearly conference, ADBS reInvent uh, in 2022 at the end of the year. So I know you were kind of tracking things that were happening during reInvent, things that came out recently around uh, the, the end of the year releases and such. So I think we should just dive into it. I guess my yeah. first comment about it and we can close this browser here just to kind of get into CY2 mode here, um, is that I noticed like, we started off with kind of this like matrix kind of funny video from Werner Vogel's keynote where he was kind of talking about the red pill and the blue pill. And if I remember correctly, like the red pill was go with, uh, you know, what was it? Go, go with regular synchronous. Right? Synchronized like versus asynchronous, yeah. And then he went through this whole bunch of like things like what if I go to a restaurant and I'm like, asking for my items for an order and, and the, the waitress goes back and she fixes the drink and then she comes back and she makes the, the burger and then she goes back and makes the fries. And obviously, it's a long-winded way of saying, um, you know, event-driven is really the way right. to go. So is is the big message really that they were really pushing specifically to, like, start thinking about things event-driven more and through things like EventBridge? So I'm going to start off by saying I did not actually attend reInvent this year. My yeah. buddy mm -hmm. is from last year. Uh Sure. Reinvent happened in the middle of a big kitchen renovation at our house. And I figured if I told my wife I was going to Vegas for a week, she'd change all the locks by the time I got back. You were so, doing your own reinvent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Reinvent the so, kitchen. You know, depending on what you get out of reinvent, you don't necessarily need to go. All the keynotes yeah. were live streamed and all of the content was up on, I believe it's YouTube uh, when I look yeah. at it, within days after it was presented. So, uh, you can virtually participate in reInvent, although you miss out on like QAs and getting together with other people. So yeah. that said, uh, there are a lot of people who are commenting that not much happened at reInvent. There wasn't much interest in. And I'm going to get to the event, the event bus uh, towards the end of our session. But okay. um, I counted out in the official... Uh, reinvent uh, release notes and blog posts, 69 different things that were released. And some of them are pretty minor. Uh, mm -hmm. Things like, uh, you know, new instance types. Uh, AWS is up to, I think, a couple hundred EC2 instances. And you can still start up the uh, M1 small that started it all 14 years ago or 12 years ago, whenever EC2 was released. Mm -hmm. So... At any rate, where was I? So from the, the recap, from watching the keynotes, I pulled out, I think it's six things that I found particularly interesting. And again, okay. with reInvent, there's just so much stuff that AWS does, so much stuff at reInvent that you really have to focus on what interests you. Uh, so Event Bus is interesting to me. It's very interesting to me uh, with work in data engineering. But let's hold that off till the end. Uh, okay. I wanted to yeah, actually start talking about Code Catalyst, which uh, you spent some time with this morning, I believe. Yeah, I'm a brand new user of it, so my mileage is currently varying. <laughs> so my red items are over here or I think it broke for me, but that doesn't mean anything beyond me playing with it, right? Right. So, so it's an interesting idea. So AWS has a lot of tools for uh, working with basically doing software development, develop, developer experience. Uh, all the standard things, you have code commit for your source repositories, you have code pipeline uh, and code build to do your CI, CD. Uh, you don't have an issue tracker prior to Code Catalyst no. that I know of. Code Catalyst basically takes all those things and puts them all together. But what's really neat about it yeah, neat's the wrong word. What's really interesting about it is that you try and figure out what it means is that it isn't reusing. It's not simply packaging up code commit and code build and whatnot. It's a completely separate thing. And it involves, it provides access to uh, 
a development environment. It provides source control. It provides an issue tracker. It provides uh, basically the tools, uh, I think they call it workflows to do your CI CD. Mm -hmm. And it's not tied closely to your AWS account. It's, uh, it's kind of like in the same space as GitHub that you have people who from maybe from all over the world, unrelated to each other, collaborating on projects. So you create your builder ID, which is unique, globally unique, and you can be invited to join different spaces and work on their projects. And it's a little bit clunky in that to create a builder ID, you have to associate your personal space with an AWS account. Right. Uh, and you ran into that today where you tried to use our uh, main account for Chariot to associate your space and says, nope, that's already associated. Yeah, and, someone has it. <laughs> yeah, and that, that seems kind of, to me, it's almost, and this is why it's an interesting project, it's almost anti-corporate, right? It's you're, yeah. you're not going to take a hundred corporate developers and make them all AWS accounts just so that they can sign up for builder IDs. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's kind of where is this going? I think is a good question. That is a good point, and and so the big problem. Well, I'm going to be slightly critical of it. Is the big problem is they kind of want you. In the sign up, they're like, you should really use your own personal email address. I'm like, okay, I could. Then I also need to be able to connect up to an AWS environment. And because they want to, and they're going to run a VM or something, a container of some sort to be the back end of your development experience. And they're going to bill you for that. So when you set up one of your um, development environments, they start up an engine. Yeah. Um, and well, so like, if you're doing everything personally, that. you're going to be charged for it, you know? So the interesting Go thing ahead. about that is that the billing is actually goes to the account associated with the space that you're joining. Right. So if you're working on your own, yeah, you're paying for it all. But like with the chariot space, you joined up to it. Chariot's going to pay for everything you do. You start up a development know, environment. Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. So the idea is that you would set up a space and multiple developers would use that account in that space. That's the Well, potential. use that space and then use build of that account for the development environment and whatever okay. else they run. Okay. But they have to have their own account and their own space to be able to sign up to use it. Seems like, <laughs> seems like they, they're working on a long plan here. I, I don't know yeah. what it is. They're going to have many iterations of this before they get to a certain point where it's smooth, I think. Um, yeah. But the, the other thing I ran into when I was playing with it was I couldn't get, and I'm, I'm on an M1 Mac. So let's start with I'm on an M1 Mac, which means probably everything is weird and odd and different and broken. <laughs> um, uh, I couldn't get it to properly launch and integrate with IntelliJ, though the, the button and the drop down and everything is there. I couldn't get it to properly integrate with Visual Studio Code, it set up the plugin, set up the plugin for IntelliJ too, it did all the work behind the scenes, but when it had to connect the two together, I suspect the SSH tunnel is the issue because both of them wouldn't connect. So then the third one I tried, and by the way, if you set up your development environment in the space, so you basically say, build me a development environment, you pick an IDE, that development environment is attached to that specific IDE, you can't then launch right. Visual Studio Code if you launch. So then you have to delete it and you can only have one per branch per project. And then when you delete it, it takes like five minutes to delete, then it goes away, then you create the next one. So I got it to the point where I could use Cloud9, which is their web-based IDE. And I was able to get, my sample was a React app. So I said, give me a React front end. And it, it created the CDK for it to like build it out. And it created the project and everything was ready to go. And I got my Cloud9 development tool and then I opened up my little terminal in Cloud9 and went NPM install. And then I'm looking for the run button. The run button is disabled. I'm like, well, that's weird. How do I run the app? Uh, NPM start. And it says running on 10.2 point whatever. And I'm like, I can't get to that from outside of AWS. So how do I get a browser? <laughs> so I'm sure I have a lot to learn in order to figure out how to use it. And I had to go through tutorials. But it, it certainly it's, seems to be built to be something where they just handle the development environment for you 
right. point and click and you're ready to go. So when that's functioning, it should be interesting to look at. Plus they have a ton of templates. So you could say, give me a complete three tier application platform or give me you know, a React front end or give me a Lambda based environment. So I have to go look at some of those templates, but it has promise certainly when they get the kinks worked out or if I figure out my kinks in using right. it. Yeah, I have a feeling that it's the goal is that individual contributors can work with companies. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but Amazon IQ is basically a, a job. It's Uber for AWS consulting. <laughs> okay, okay. That's where, what you mentioned earlier today when we were talking about it. Okay. Yeah, and I wonder if it's somehow tied to that. You know, personally, the whole thing is interesting to me because we're consultants. We work with mm -hmm. numerous clients. It's a really good idea to have everything nicely partitioned and walled off by client. And I currently yeah. do that using virtual machines. Mm -hmm. um, and I like the idea of, of like this for years of having actually running my development environment in the cloud. Yeah. Not quite there. Not quite yet. I, I'll throw an alternative out there, which is I've been looking at this is more provisioning the development engine. And the one I've been looking at now, it's like it's based on Docker. So you would run something called dev containers. And so the, the idea there is, and it's a smaller scale idea that maybe this is built on. I don't know if they're doing this behind the scenes, but it's that you would create Docker container to have all of your development tools in it. And then you launch the container and you connect to the terminal through SSH, just like what these guys are doing. And it came out when they were building the, the Microsoft uh, Windows uh, WSL Linux VMs when you run Visual Studio Code and you've got a Linux VM like Ubuntu installed, you can install Ubuntu and install Docker on Ubuntu and you can do Git clone on Ubuntu, but then you're dealing with like a terminal and VI, it's horrible, you know? Um, horrible in terms of like an IDE, right? Great tools, but horrible user interface. And then they said, well, what we can do is we can make the, the development environment be basically something I can connect into and Visual Studio Code gives you the beautiful, beautiful, the beautiful Windows GUI for it that's functional and useful but you get a Linux terminal at the bottom and you run everything through the Linux instance. They, they turn that into an open source project called dev containers. And so I wonder if this thing's using dev containers behind the scenes, because it's kind of the same concept. You fire up a VM, you SSH right. into the VM, and it looks like it's a native experience, but it's really remote terminal communications. I think you might actually be firing up a container, not a VM. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, probably is actually. So, yeah, I should I should be uh, clear. It probably is a, a, a container for sure, because they're talking about like CPU units, virtual CPUs. That right. sounds like a Fargate container or something like that or something along those lines. OK, so, that's so yeah, it's definitely something to watch. To watch. Mm -hmm. yeah. OK, so the second thing on my list is open search serverless. Hmm. And the reason this is on my list is the whole question of what is serverless? Yeah. Uh, and a number of commentators had have said, wait a second, you start up one of these things, you, uh, you're going to be spending around $700 a month to run it. And right. you can't spool down to, uh, you can't shut it off, period. You have to have a minimum of four nodes running, and those nodes cost 24 cents an hour each. So... It kind of a lot of people have been saying this this isn't serverless. And I think it's it kind of highlights a different conception of serverless. You know, yeah. I, there's there's basically two ways to look at serverless. And the way that I always thought about serverless uh, is the idea that you focus on your application logic and you don't focus on deployment. And that mm -hmm. idea of serverless has basically been around, well, you know in the world I live in since uh, Java enterprise apps of you know, 2000, early 2000s. And the idea right. there is that you have uh, your development teams working on an enterprise app that can be fully wrapped up and your ops team will deploy it onto a fleet of some E10,000 machines. And <laughs> uh, you don't have to care about how it's deployed. You have all these right. services that just they provide all the services you need. And 
that's that's an interesting that's how I think of serverless and that that fits a lot of different deployments you know lambda made a big splash as being serverless uh, mm -hmm. but you go back and look at Google app engine it's the same thing uh, the host that I'm using for my uh, my personal website that just lets me deploy PHP code same thing I focus on my code I don't focus on uh, on the actual deployment but the other side of serverless is with Amazon's tagline that you only pay for what you use. And Lambda mm -hmm. fits into that really well, right? If you're not running your Lambda function, you're not paying for it. Uh, other things that fit the same way, if you go, Amazon has actually a page where they list the things that they consider serverless. And oh, they so do, for, okay. Yeah, I, I included that link to you. And so for example, SQS, the Simple Queue Service, or SNS, Simple Notification Service, is considered serverless. Mm -hmm. Kinesis isn't because you have to pay to keep for per shard per hour to keep your Kinesis streams up. Um, other things that are serverless, DynamoDB is serverless because they now have an auto scale option where it's, it used to be with DynamoDB, you had to say how much read and write capacity you want and you'd be throttled if you went above that. And incidentally in development and Staging environments, I really highly recommend that you do that so that a bug in your code doesn't give you a multi-thousand dollar bill. Yeah, um, right. The DynamoDB, I can't remember the name of it. Basically, it's provisioned is where you specify how much read and write capacity you have. And then there's the version that it just gives you whatever you ask for. So that's kind of a serverless thing. But again, it's this, you only pay when you're using it. If you don't use it, you don't pay. But that's kind of been changing. And I yes, think I know the, the service you're about to mention, which is Aurora. Yes, you win. Yeah. <laughs> Aurora and serverless can't be shut down in version two. Exactly. Uh, half a, at least half a CPU unit, I believe, is what it is. Yep. You, also, mm -hmm. you have to keep it always running. So you, that begs the question, is that really serverless? You know, I'm not provisioning anything. I'm not saying... I want a terabyte of disk and I want a certain instance type. Uh, it's, so from the perspective of, I don't have to care about provisioning it serverless, but on the uh, perspective of you only pay for what you use, it's definitely not. Uh, yeah. And open search serverless is basically the same idea, except now it's really expensive. You know, Aurora serverless V2, you can scale down to that half of an ACU and it's, you know, it's 30 a month nothing, or something like that. Yeah, it's cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, compare that to 700 a month. So it's, wow. uh, it, it's kind of, again, getting a glimpse into Amazon's product strategy. And what they think of serverless may not be what you and I think of serverless. It's funny because internally, what we've been working on a fair amount, and just to kind of open this a little bit, is I've been working on the concept of like having a good way of starting a container-based application, like when you're ready to start it, like firing up without a ton of R, you know, R&D, it takes a while to like pull the stacks together. Um, you've got no good point with it. Um, and the reason I got to that is because I don't like having my control taken away from me for development and having to run inside of cloud environments that are clunky in development. So for me, if I can run the application in a Docker container, or even just natively locally and use environment variables and such to inject the information and maybe a secrets manager for a password or whatever. But if I, and I could just use the SDK to the services I can call like S3 and SQS and SDS from my machine using just an AWS profile. And then I deploy in the cloud into like ECS or EKS and the environment variables are injected during a code build. Then I don't have to rent my development environment and I have some control, right? We could share SQS queues or a Cognito security interface, you know, uh, you know, share user pools and things like that. But you're paying minimal for those as opposed to like having a whole development environment in the cloud. So it'll be very interesting to me to see over the next year or two how this tracks and what our customers start using. You know, if they start saying, oh, well, we don't, we hate provisioning. We want one person to do it and click a button and we'll pay for it. You know, I could see bigger customers doing that, but startups, I think like something like open search serverless could get very pricey for them. Right. 
So yeah. I'm glad you brought this one up. This is this is a really interesting one to keep an eye on. This trend. Well, it feeds into my next thing, which is Lambda Snapstart. Okay. And so Lambda has historically had uh, a problem with cold start times. So the idea of Lambda is that you uh, you make a request, the Lambda container spins up if necessary and stops running at the end of your request. And it can mm -hmm. reuse containers. So right. all well and good. You can hook up Lambda to be the service in a web service, for example. And it's really mm -hmm. easy to do that, except when you start up a new Lambda container, depending on how much you do and how you configure it, it might take 10 seconds before it actually does anything. And yeah. I, I have a blog post from a few years ago that actually compares how increasing the memory you give to a Lambda improves cold start times. And the reason the cold start times exist is you're starting up this machine, just like a JVM from scratch, yeah. you're loading in classes, right? You're, you're doing initialization things before you actually do anything. And, and I say JVM because Java is the worst offender here. But even Python, <laughs> yeah. you, you can mm -hmm. spin up a cold Python container and to be able to load up Boto3, there's a lot of work that it's doing. Uh, if you load in Pandas, for example, into a cold Python container, that takes a lot of time. And your second call can be really fast because everything's initialized. So Amazon has come up with a number of approaches to try and work around this. And yep. one approach that everybody immediately turns to is provisioned instances or provi provision. Like warming it up in, in advance, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, when you're using provision concurrency, it always keeps a certain number of instances warm. At which point I think, you know, that idea of serverless is only paid for what you use is right out the window because now you're paying for uh, however many instances. I think it's $40 a month per Lambda to keep it provisioned. Per what? Is that per Lambda per virtual CPU, you think? Uh, per Lambda per execution environment. Okay, all right. Right, because la Lambda spins up, each Lambda invocation runs in one, ver in one in execution environment. And you can reuse the execution environments, but if you have two concurrent requests handled by Lambda, you need two execution environments. Now it's 80 a month. If you had to do that for a long period of time. Yeah. And sooner or later, you're always going to hit the margin. Again, with the promise of lambdas, you can scale up to however many thousand concurrent instances very quickly. Except you can't keep a thousand concurrent instances provisioned. Uh, so <laughs> if, you're, yeah. if your app, for whatever reason, gets pounded, could be a denial of service attack, could be that you're mentioned on Hacker News. Uh, yeah. Now, all of a sudden, everybody is going to be getting new execution environments and paying that cold start time, even if you're provisioned. So this, yeah. you and I have discussed this a lot of the idea oh, yeah. of, you know, don't do your web apps in Lambda, do them in like an ECS container, a Docker container. Right. In a multi-threaded operating environment running in a container. Yeah. Yeah. If and possible. You're going to get your best response times doing that. And it's really not that expensive. Yeah, you leave and it And again, you're paying, right. And you're paying, if you pre-provision your lambdas, you're paying at least that much, if not more. Exactly. So, you know, and if you have 10 lambdas or 50 lambdas, then are you going to burn them all up? You know, you know. Did you hear the term lambda lift before? My no, favorite what's, term. what's this? So. So there's three patterns of like like design patterns for lambdas these days. One of the one of the patterns is that every individual function is a separate lambda, and of course that proliferates a million lambdas, and you have some really bad situations if you're not careful about managing them and you know having to pay for the cold start times, you know, in terms of like latency and waiting. Then there's the concept of like you have groups of related functions in a lambda with like an if statement or switch or case that kind of branch off the different logic, which a lot of us have done to kind of avoid too many lambdas in an environment, kind of simplify it for one deployment. And that sometimes works. And a lambda lift is like running Spring in a lambda or running an Express app as a lambda. So it's called a lambda lift. 
<laughs> and I'm like, and that's the whole point of that, I guess, is to say, look, we really don't want a container, but we want to start as a Lambda, so let's do that. Hmm, you know, yeah. just run a container at that point, in my opinion. It's a little bit of overhead. It's a fair amount of conceptual overhead to set it up once, but then you have less deployments because you have right. a lot of things in a, in a stack, an application right. stack. So and I would encourage people to look at that as an alternative if you start getting more complex front ends that need a lot of interactions with the back end, don't create a thousand lambdas. Right. That's going to hurt you. I, I think, yeah. You, you have to do something that lets a small pool of lambdas do most of the work. Um, yeah. But the idea of bringing up an actual framework like Spring, certainly, or Express, those are killer cold start times. Oh, that's got to be awful. Yeah, especially, you can't make, well, I remember seeing apps start, like big spring apps start in like five minutes, you know? To do that, to have one function called and then quit, like, what are you yeah. doing, you know? No. <laughs> no. So that, that brings us to Snapstart. And Snapstart, cool. okay. from a technology perspective, is incredibly cool. Okay. Basically, what you do is when you enable Snapstart on your Lambda, it runs the initialization code in your Lambda, everything outside of the, uh, the handler, and right. then takes an image of the memory. Snapshot of it. Okay. Yeah. And cool. then okay. when you spin up a new Lambda execution environment, it populates it from that image. Oh, so okay. it's technologically, it's a neat solution. Uh, yeah. You know, if you have something like you're bringing in Spring, or you're bringing in uh, you're bringing in even the Java SDK or the Python SDK, right? Like, again, as or I like Flask or Django or something like that. Yeah, right. Right. Mm -hmm. As I have in my blog post, it will take up to ten seconds just to make a single uh, Java SDK call to the AWS yeah. SDK. So right. it's kind of a neat idea but it has some limitations. Number one, you have to put all this stuff in initialization code. Mm -hmm. And in Python, that's pretty easy. So in Python and Node is gonna be the same thing. You basically load up your script and that initial script runs, parses, uh, gets compiled, stored in bytecode. That all is part of initialization. Mm -hmm. And then you call your, your uh, Lambda handler. In Java, to make this work, you have to have a static initializer. And I remember this was like 10 years ago at when I was at Chariot, my first project at Chariot was coming in to help a company where they had had another consultant who basically instantiated Spring inside of a static initializer. And it just, it would blow up when it started. So that's, kind of questionable Plunky, to, to say the least yeah right and things like a database connection pool you know you take an image of memory uh your tcp connections aren't living right. in that image right so you'll get your database connection pool if it actually create you can't let it create connections until they're actually mm -hmm. used uh, so it's it's a little bit iffy in practice i think it takes a lot of work to uh to make it work well when I actually did this, it took about two minutes to prepare the Lambda to be invoked with Snapstart, and mm. then about 300 milliseconds to actually start it up and run my run my function, which is hell of a lot better than 10 seconds. Yeah. But sure is, yeah. But it's still, if you're writing a web service, 300 milliseconds is not great. That's especially over the number of calls you're going to make over time magnifies the. Yeah, total latency you're getting out of the app. Yeah, again, you, you know, if you can reuse execution environments, it's great. You don't pay that. Um, right, right. But yeah, but it if it's like time. every two hours this gets invoked, then it's 300 milliseconds every two hours, yeah. and maybe you need a quick round trip for that particular service. Yeah. Um. You're, the other thing I thought about cover. around this, right? The other thing I thought about around this is like Graal VM. So Graal VM is, and we'll talk to Jack in a second on this too. Um, Graal VM, G-R-A-A-L VM, is a version of the Java VM that builds down to a binary. So it's not like a Java runtime. And the idea is like an actual compiled executable, at least 
conceptually. I'm not sure what happens behind the scenes. So that was like the Java development teams, the JDK people's goal of really making containers start super, super fast. I'm curious if that plus some of this stuff, or maybe in lieu of this stuff, kind of achieves some of the same results, but I don't know. I don't know if you can do Lambda in a ground VM. I don't think you can, can you? I, I think that's the goal of it. Okay. Um, I looked at GraalVM again two, three years ago, and it it has its own limitations. It's basically it has to be able to load everything up while you're compiling. It takes a really long time to compile and build. And yeah. with what I was using, and I can't remember why, if I dug into why it did this, but it, it gave up. It said, I can't compile all this stuff. So I'm going to spin up a VM. I'm going to have a VM inside your deployment bundle that I'm going to spin up. We're all good. Okay. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, don't, I don't want to put down Brawl VM yeah. uh, sure. because I think it offers a lot of promise. And I that think was years ago. Fit. I need to get back into it. Yeah, me too. I think where it might fit is if we go back to the containers part of the discussion. When you're auto-scaling containers, if you can boot your Spring container in much less time, for example, if you're a Spring developer, then that has the potential advantage for when you deploy containers. So I think for that, it makes some sense right. as a way to reduce the, the ramping up of, a, of an ECS or EKS container, perhaps. So that's where I think that fits as an analog to this particular concept over here. So we'll have to see where that goes. But that, that's something I want to do some research on as well. Um, some of the, you know, right now I've got my sample full stack platform is all node-based just because it kind of fit with the pattern I was working with, but to put like a Spring Boot amp engine on, on it instead and boot that and maybe try Grawl versus regular JK would be interesting. And so Jack asks, is Java going out the window now? That's like the perennial question, right? It's not yeah. going out the window. Java will be with us forever. It's just, um, you know, specifically for Lambdas, I think you have to look at how Java starts up and how long it takes for the VM to boot. Right. Whether it makes sense to do for a Lambda application, whether you're whether the thing you're using Lambda for is an asynchronous event where you can absorb that versus if it's something where there's a front end that needs quick low latency hits on interaction so it doesn't feel like you're working in molasses. Right. And the other thing is that Java has a definite trade-off between things that are short and things that are long. Right. Once Hotspot kicks in, if you're doing something that's processing a large amount of data and Hotspot kicks in, Java is going to run away from everything else. So it's it's definitely a trade-off. Yeah. Well, great question, Jack. Thank you. All right. So that's Snapshot. Snapshot. I can't speak. Snapshot. <laughs> I'm going to go and hide in a small corner of my office now and cry because I've done it wrong. Lambda Snapstart. Let's move on to Redshift streaming. Yeah, this this is just really quick. So Redshift has spent a big chunk of it's okay, Ken. <laughs> been a big chunk of my the last few years working with Redshift. And I really like it for reasons that I wrote up in a blog post uh, like six months ago. But Redshift to get data into Redshift can be a challenge. Uh, you basically traditionally put the data on S3 and either use a copy command to pull it into Redshift or access it via Redshift Spectrum. And a lot of data these days comes with streaming data. You know, if you hook up to segment.io, yeah, they'll drop stuff into S3 for you, but they'd much rather just dump stuff on a Kinesis stream. So Redshift streaming is basically you can create a materialized view that references a Kinesis stream. And then when you read rows from that view, each row is a separate message in the stream. And really interesting idea. I happen to like Kinesis as a way to deliver data. Uh, it's a little bit clunky to work with. And I, I have to check my notes here uh, because you basically, the message that you get is, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm looking here. Uh, I, was, mm -hmm. I think there's a problem with gzip in it. But the message that you get as a row read from the stream is basically 
this uh, what Redshift describes as the ver binary or ver byte type that you then have to parse to get whatever you want out of it. Um, so like if you have a JSON message coming across the stream, you load it in, you access it from the materialized view, you have to use the Redshift parsing functions to either transform that JSON into a super, which has some interesting issues, or into a, uh, or just use the, like a JSON, oh, I can never remember the name, so this because they're different from Athena, but there's like a JSON scalar or whatnot that takes a JSON path expression. So interesting idea, uh, if you have a data pipeline process and a transformation process, this is kind of pulling the extract load transform approach. You treat this, vert, this uh, materialized view as your data source and transform it into your actual data warehouse. It's um, interesting. I, I ran into a few problems. I, I were, I think, getting short on time and I don't have my notes right in front of me. Uh, but again, it's, it's something I found okay. interesting. And that brings us to EventBridge, the last thing on my list. Okay. Uh, so some background. So EventBridge started life as CloudWatch events and kind of mm, okay. attaching it to an existing service. And EventBridge as CloudWatch events gave you the capability to listen for certain events from AWS services and trigger things as a result. Uh, so for example, one place that I've used it several times is you listen for the, the ending of an ECS or batch task. And then that triggers a Lambda that goes out, grabs the, uh, the CloudWatch logs for that task and scans through them to find any problems. Uh, kind of make sure that everything looks copacetic. So that was where it was at, end, I think, end of 2016 was CloudWatch events. 2019, mm -hmm. it was rebranded as EventBridge. And at some point in or around that time, it's always challenging to look at uh, documentation history. Yeah, They kind of cast it as an event bus like Mule. And the idea that you could have multiple event buses inside of EventBridge, you could post events and you could trigger a whole bunch of things as a result. Uh, not just Lambdas, but uh, your own APIs. You can use event bridge. I may be lying when I say this. I may be confusing it with other things, but you could use it mm -hmm. to write stuff to uh, like a SQSQ or Kinesis stream. Uh, I'd have to double check that. I've never done it. Mm -hmm. uh, I've used okay. event bridge to send a message to API gateway to talk to a Kinesis stream. So at any rate, this idea of it being in a, an event bus and you can have multiple things triggered off in a serverless uh, microservices architecture, right? This is the classic usage of an event bus. You're, you're an e-commerce site, someone clicks uh, send order, and that event goes off to your warehouse, it goes off to your billing system, it goes off to perhaps multiple other systems all through your event bus. And that's, that's the promise of an event bus. And that brings us back to uh, Werner Vogel's keynote where he's talking about an asynchronous world that revolves around event buses, which is kind of new. Uh, even though EventBridge has been out for four years, three years now, this idea of uh, making it be the center of your, your architecture is new. And then he introduced EventBridge. Oh, sorry, you look like you're about to say something. No, I think that a lot of developed for many years, a lot of people have used like queues to decouple things and yeah. then probably topics for a public subscribe and things like that, certainly as well. But new for the AWS team to really kind of push a product to do it is what you're basically saying. I suppose you, they're expecting you to have architectures that are loosely coupled through messaging, but yeah. now they're actually putting a product in front of you. Yeah. To do it. And taking away a lot of the, um, the custom code. So right, the provisioning code you have to write and the linking up and designing of those things. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, if you're using like SQS to communicate between lambdas, you have to know that lambda A is going to be publishing, lambda B is going to be listening and tie those together. 
now you work say, your correlations together and everything by yourself and all that stuff. Yeah, right. Right. Now all you say is, I'm going to put a message into EventBridge. Mm -hmm. And anything that cares about that message, and it uses a rule-based, I hate to use the word rule, it's becoming overloaded, but a fairly simple rule-based matching to say, this event triggers this destination. Okay. Um, so, you know, it's an event bus. Mule did it 10 yeah. plus years ago, 15 years ago now, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. But it's it's a nice approach to decoupling. EventBridge pipes, though, is the thing that kind of raised my eyebrows. And mm -hmm. just like EventBridge was a brand attachment to CloudWatch originally, EventBridge pipes is a brand attachment to EventBridge. They have very little to do with each other. Uh, EventBridge <laughs> pipes is not tied to the event bus. And in fact, you can't... In put anything onto a pipe that you put into the event bus. You have to have something as an intermediary. Interesting. Okay. But what EventBridge pipes is really nice is it gives you a model for connecting sources and destinations. And it gives you a transformation in the middle. Uh, so this sounds like who cares, right? You know, let's, let's take an example that I think of a lot, which is Kinesis. Uh, you have been able to, for years, have a Lambda triggered by a Kinesis stream. So people mm -hmm. put messages on the stream and the Lambda infrastructure gathers up however many of those messages you want from one to 10,000 based on time or number of messages and can invoke a Lambda and hands off those messages. And the Lambda can process those messages. But then you get into the issue of, let's say you want to process those messages in some way. Maybe your Lambda just filters out ones that it doesn't care about. And then you want to write to a new Kinesis stream. Writing to a Kinesis stream, if you haven't done it, has a lot of challenges that unless you read the documentation word for word or have come from Kafka and had similar understanding standing in Kafka, you're going to miss things like when you're doing a put events, which is a batch put, individual events in that batch might be rejected. You have to hold on to them and save them and send them again. Uh, it's really a lot of work. And I, I, my logging library that writes to Kinesis, there is a lot of test code to try and make sure that I cover that fully. So EventBridge Pipes gets rid of that problem for you. Uh, you basically, you, you're, you still have a Lambda that gets invoked with some number of events and it just returns the list of events that it wants to send to the destination and event bridge pipes takes care of the messy work of actually sending it. Okay. So it handles the edge case theater that you run into. Yeah. You would have to learn how to deal with yourself. In exactly. Uh, so it's, it's a, I think a really nice feature if you're building data pipelines that that do transformations like that. And the other there, thing that, uh, well, No, I'm sorry, is there is there a significant, significant cost in rolling that out as opposed to doing it um, by hand? Like, are they charging a, a premium nope. for, for this? Nope, you only pay for the, the Lambda invocations and for the, the nice. source and destination. Okay, so that could really be something that might make things simpler for handling that kind of work. I, I think so. And one thing that it handles cool. that uh, is great is that it will do a one-to-many transformation. Hmm. So use case that I have for this, CloudWatch logs, you can subscribe a Kinesis stream to your CloudWatch logs. CloudWatch writes a single message to the Kinesis stream that may have however many log events, log messages, yeah. it can package up. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you do with that? Everything that uh, that needs to transform that, that needs to use that, needs to pull those events out. Uh, I Years ago, I put together a logging pipeline that ended up with Kinesis Firehose writing to Elasticsearch. And you can't simply subscribe your logs into that because Firehose doesn't know how to deal with these uh, nested messages. Elasticsearch doesn't know how to deal with these nested messages. 
So the solutions you have are to write a, write a Lambda to process it or go to the console and say, yeah, I'm going to use the Amazon provided uh, Elasticsearch log subscription, which, oh, happens to be a Lambda. Right. That's the same thing you would do, except they did it. Yeah. Yeah. EventBridge Pipes makes this much easier. You just, you can hook up your destination stream and all your Lambda does is it goes into the source event, says, find me all the log events and return them as an array. It's a flat map, basically. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, so it's a lot less code. Uh, for that use case, it's great. In fact, I put a blog post on my personal blog about that. The other thing that Pipes gives you is it gives you a no-code approach. Uh, so simple transformations where you want to just grab like four fields out of out of a source message, you can reference them with JSON path. And okay. you don't need a Lambda. You can just say, go through, and they also do filtering, same way, where you say, you know, pull these four fields out, and that's my destination message. So that's nice. So for a lot of things that are just simple integrations, it's just a little bit of JSON. Exactly. And that's it. Okay. Exactly. So, so well, so it seems like there was a lot of stuff that was announced at uh, reInvent, but just you have to kind of dig for what you're looking for, really. Exactly. Well, that's always the, the way it is there. Criticism. Yeah, right. Okay. It is definitely interesting to watch where they're going in terms of serverless, though. I think that uh, I, I would hate to end up in a world where it's like cable subscriptions turn into a lot of little streaming service subscriptions suddenly. And all of a sudden you look at your bill and go, ah, like if it turns out <laughs> that there's a ton of serverless things that don't shut off that suddenly make your bill a ridiculous amount of money. That would be a shame if we went down that road for everything. But uh, you have options because you still have, you can even do EC2 containers if you really wanted to in the AWS. It's, they don't deprecate anything. So it's really more of a just understanding the trade-offs for all these things is the key really. Right. You know? So, all right. Well, thank you for spending the time with me today on all this oh, stuff. This was you. great. Yeah. All right. So if you want to see uh, anything about reInvent, uh, we have a, a link in the show notes here for all the announcements from AWS reInvent. You can take a look at all of those. If you want to see what Keith is writing at Chariot um, on our blog, he's got some great stuff there. And he speaks a lot at like the AWS uh, user group meetings and uh, other places as well. So you can check that out by going to our Chariot website and searching for Keith Gregory. We'll put some links up, I think, for some of the, the common blog posts that people reach from you. And uh, yeah, again, thank okay. you very much. We appreciate it. All right. Have a good rest of the day. Cool. Yeah, you too. And don't forget, phillyemergingtech.com. You can uh, get your early bird tickets now. So uh, head over there before they sell out. Thanks, everybody. See you in a couple weeks.